Well, I'm so thankful for our children. They're so full of life, and uh, they make our, our church fun. Uh, and uh, as we watch them grow into the uh, men and women of God that God has called them to be. There's so many fun things about kids. Wherever they are, they bring energy. Uh, kids just, they bring it. How many times have you heard somebody say, I wish I had half the energy that those guys have? They bring enthusiasm. They're all in. When something is fun and they enjoy it, they, they are all in. Uh, another thing I love about kids is they're inquisitive. You know, the kids are always asking questions. Who made things? How does that work? You know, where did the dinosaurs go? They're always asking these, these curious questions. But as kids get older, questions can get frustrating, can't they? You know, I mean, you, 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 you start to hear in the car, are we there yet? You know, or, or why do I have to clean my room? Or why can't I go to that party? Or, or can my friends stay overnight while their friend is standing right next to them? You know, uh, last week, uh, thank you for the chance uh, to go study for a few days. I had the opportunity to go and kind of get by myself and, and study and prepare for next year if the Lord gives us next year. And, and while I was, uh, I, I was at Land Between the Lakes and I was close enough to my former church to get to go and worship them, on a Sunday, and uh, you know, I, I hope that as we continue to spend more time together, it's more than just pastor and, and congregation. I hope it's it's friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. That's my deep desire. And so, we, I spent 14 years with these folks, and so it was a joy to get to go back and to see some of my friends. And, and while I was there, some of the kids that were this tall are now this tall, and one of them came up to me, and and, and he he. He said to me, Pastor Nick, Pastor Nick, I have a question. I thought, okay, yeah, what, what question do you have? He says, I have a question about when God calls you to preach. And my ears perked up. I was excited to hear what this young man was going to say. He says, when God calls you to preach, is it true that you have to shave your head? Smart aleck. <laughs> Uh, that that I, I just counted that as a one-off until last night we were sitting at home and I got a text from one of our church members and they said, "Hey, Pastor Nick, we're playing <laughs> we're playing catchphrase." And our daughter I said, "This is what Pastor Nick is." And one of them said, "Funny," and another one said, "Short," which I didn't like that either. But they said, "No, bald." Oh, that's a little more than I needed to hear. You know, but this young man, he had questions. Now, not all questions are really important, but some questions are essential. And how you answer some questions will shape your life. And how you answer some questions will either cause you to or keep you from having a full and a meaningful life. Today, we're going to start a series of sermons uh, about key questions. And, and we'll deal with what I consider to be uh, the... Lisa, are we got, have we got contact up there? Keep talking until we do. <laughs> All right, it's coming. Okay, keep deal, we're going to deal with uh, the, what I consider the three most important questions that that that, that we can face as human beings. We're, we're going to deal with the question: Who am I? 
Uh, And then we'll spend some time talking about the question, why am I here? Why did God put me here? Why did he create me? And, And then we'll spend a little while talking about where am I going? But we're going to start with the question, who am I? Uh, most of the time when we think about that question, who am I, we answer it something like this. I'm the son of, or I'm the husband or the wife of, or I'm the father of, or I'm the pastor of, or I'm a part of the big blue nation, or something like that. That's how we answer, but, but sometimes as believers, we don't talk about where we came from and who we're connected to. We talk about our identity in Christ. You know, I am a child of God. I am saved by grace. I am uh, God's God's child. And and that's a great way to answer that question, who I am. But that is not the question I'm focusing on today. Today, we're going to focus on the question, who am I as a a human being? Uh, now, I, w- I want to start by thinking about why this is an important question. Each week when we deal with these questions, we're going to talk about why is this an essential question and, and how does the Bible address it. First of all, let's think about why is it is an essential question. It is an essential question because knowing who we are is foundational for our worldview. And if you're a note taker, that's where we're starting this morning. Knowing who you are is foundational for how you view the world. How you look at the world is going to be influenced by who you think you are. If you believe you're created, if you believe that you're planned, if you believe that you're destined, that's going to influence how you think. But if you think you're an accident, you're going to have a very different perspective. Knowing who you are influences your values. The way you determine what is morally good is influenced by who you think that you are. The way you treat people, the way you make choices, the way you determine right from wrong, uh, all of these are influenced by who you believe you are. If you believe you're the product of a holy God who demands you to follow his rules, you'll value those rules. But if you think your origin is ambiguous and you don't really know where you come from or why you're here, how can you with any certainty know how you're supposed to live? Knowing where you come from also determines meaning. If you're a child of God, your, your purpose is to please Him. And meaning is found in doing His will. But if you don't understand who you are, then it's impossible to know for sure if the things that you're currently pursuing are are what you were meant to do. I see it. Very good. Go back to the first one then. That will be fine. You can't do that either? Okay. All right. Guys, if you're note takers, can you all keep up with me if I just go straight? You don't have any choice today, and I'll see if my arms are long enough today. For these reasons, and many others, uh, it's important to know who who am I. Uh, 
And you don't have to look far in the Bible to find those answers. In the first few chapters of Genesis, we're given this clear answer. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God. The Bible starts with the declaration that God is. And that He has been from the beginning. When we talk to children about creation, the question invariably comes up. Who made God? You know, they want to know who made me, but when we tell them God made you, almost immediately they ask the question, who who made God? Well, Christians believe that God is eternal. I am an unashamed presuppositionalist. A presuppositionalist is a person who believes that there are just some things that you have to believe. And I believe one of those things is that God is eternal. We believe that 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 the existence of God and His eternal nature is the platform off of which we build our entire life. Now, there's several definitions of God. Uh, some would say that God is perfection. Uh, and, uh, Aquinas said that, that or, excuse me, Ansem said that God is that which greater nothing else can be conceived. Uh, some would say that God is the supreme being and He is all of those things. But being eternal is a part of the essential definition of God. You know what's odd to me? Scientists scoff at us because we're presuppositionalists. They do. How can you believe in something by faith? How can you just believe it? But yet, don't, science does this every day. Do they not? A presupposition would be something... You know, how can you believe something's eternal? A presupposition would be something like this. Matter is neither created or destroyed. Now, I'm not real smart, but doesn't that sound like eternal to you? Oh, you can't believe in a God because He's in eternal... He, he, you say He's eternal, but you, you say that matter is eternal? This earth that, that we stand on is... This causes people to push back, but yet all human beings are presuppositionalists. We all choose a diving board off which to jump. Every jump is by faith. Christians believe that God exists and that He's eternal. And at this point, we could get sidetracked as, as we read Genesis 1, but I want to tell you, Genesis 1 is not here to explain whether or not God exists. Genesis 1 assumes God exists. In the beginning was God. Genesis 1 was written to explain why we exist and who we are. So let's, let's approach it from, from that perspective. Genesis 1, verse 1. Thank you. My daughter knew my problem. I was panicking that I couldn't read my Bible. The, the notes on the screen are a lot bigger. <laughs> Thank you. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Then in verse 6 he says, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters separating 
water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water from the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. Verse 9. And then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and then God said, let the earth produce vegetation. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Verse 16, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day and the lesser light to have dominion over the night, as well as the stars. Verse 18. These lights would dominate the day and the night, and and He made them to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 20. Then God said, Let the water swarm with living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures. And every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl. And the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. The creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 31. And God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. As we read this passage, in light of who we are as human beings, the first thing we see is that we are intelligent, intentionally created beings. We we are intelligent beings, and, and we are intentionally created First, let's think about what, means, what it means to be intelligently created. The creation of the universe, the creation of the earth and everything in it, the creation of man, is not presented as this accidental random act, but as a planned, thought-out event. Notice, as you read Genesis 1, as I just read through those passages, God says, let us do this, and then God does this. He plans it out, and then He acts. God said, let there be light, and so God made light. This earth is not a cosmic game of roulette where God surprised Himself with His creation. It's intricately designed. Our God is the God of order. And one of the things that you may miss in a casual reading is that throughout creation, God creates spaces, and then He fills those spaces. Have you ever noticed that? In Genesis 1, or excuse me, in day 1, day 2, and day 3, God creates space. And then in day 4, He fills day 1. In day 5, He fills day 2. In day 6, He fills day 3. He creates spaces, and then He fills 
those spaces. And he designed those spaces to work perfectly. There's the right amount of sunshine making its way to the earth. The gravitational pull is just right. It keeps, as we get older, it feels wrong. But most of the time, it feels just right. The earth spins just fast enough for us to hold on, but yet not so fast that it shoots us spinning off into space. The earth is able to produce just enough food so that we can be sustained on this earth. It is intelligently designed, but it's also intentionally designed. Why did God make the universe? And this is a deep answer. If you, if you take notes that are not on the screen, I'll give you one. Why did God make the universe? He wanted to. He made the earth for his pleasure. God makes and he admires. I mean, have you ever noticed that about creation? He makes it. And he steps back and says, man, that's good. Now, we all have a different idea of what good is. You know, good music, we all have a different idea. Usually it's what we rode around to when we were 16 is what we think is good music. You know, we have a different idea of like what uh, uh, good, uh, um, oh, uh, uh, good food is, right? You know, I mean, I love Cajun food. You know, I, that's good food. You know, I, 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 I like steak and potatoes. That's good food. I like Italian. That's good food. I like Mexican. I just like food. But some of y'all just like some food, you know, but you, you have different ideas of what you think good sermons are. Most of you have, of those ideas have to do with length. But anyhow, we... We all have different ideas of good, but when it comes to the earth, only one opinion matters, and it's God's. And when he creates the heavens, he says it's good. And when he creates the earth, he says it's good. The sea, the land, the birds, the fish, animals that creep along the ground, he says of all things, they are good. And then he finishes man. And the quality of creation is changed. He goes from saying that it's good to very good. When God saw all that he made, he said it is very good. That brings me to point number two. It's not until the creation of man is this concept introduced. Therefore, we must say that according to the Bible, we are qualitatively different from all other creatures. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror, but you are more valuable than any other created thing. You're more valuable than an animal. You're more valuable than any other place. You are are the the most valuable creation of God. This seems so elementary, but the enemy constantly works to undermine this truth. Internally. We have so many negative thoughts thrown at us by the accuser. You're worthless. You should harm yourself. You're not worth being here. That's the enemy. That's not God. That's the enemy speaking into your life. God would never say that. God says you're of ultimate value. And the enemy also works externally to devalue human life. There are many people who believe that we are not the highest form of creation. I read this week a quote 
from Ingrid Newkirk, the president of PETA. She wrote this in, or had, was quoted in Vogue magazine saying, Animal liberationists do not separate out the human animal. There's no rational basis for saying a human being has special rights. And then she says, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They are all mammals. Period. No greater value. Period. <laughs> we might scoff at such a thought, but sometimes we, we live exactly like that. Do you value human life over created things? Oh, sure, preacher. Well, if the decision was to be made between your dog dying or your neighbor dying, some of you would say, which neighbor? You know? Guys, human beings are qualitatively more valuable than any other created thing. Man is the highest creation of God. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout all the earth. You've covered the heavens with your glory. When I observe your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you think about me? What is the son of man that you look after him and yet you have made him a little less than God and you've crowned him with glory and honor? Why are we different? We're not different because of our material makeup. It's the immaterial things that make us unique. We've been entrusted with the image of God. Notice verse 26 of chapter 1 in Genesis again. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. And he created him male and female. There's a lot of discussion on what the image of God means. People look at our makeup and, and, and wonder what is it about us that that is the image of God. Well, let me first just say the image of God is that which is in us that resembles the deity, that resembles our God. And theologians have tried to isolate which things, and that's a dangerous path to head down uh, to try to say what is the one thing in us. But I want to give you three things that I think in combination give us at least a basis for why we are different, why we are unique, why we're in God's image. Number one, we're rational beings. We have the ability to compute, the ability to decide, the ability to make arguments, the capacity to plan, the capacity to organize, the capacity to think critically. We're rational beings for the most part, most days. We're moral beings. We believe that there's right and wrong. You know, one of the proofs of the existence of God in philosophy is that humanity has a shared concept of what is good. It's the moral argument for the existence of God. And humanity in every area, in most societies in every area, believe that murder is wrong. They believe that lying is wrong. They believe that theft is wrong. 
You see, inside the human composition is this moral compass that guides us. And so societies everywhere value love. They value sacrifice. For the most part, they value care for the elderly. It's ingrained in our heart by the Creator. All these things reveal His character. But not only are we in the image of God because we're rational and because we're moral, we're created in the image of God because we are relational beings. God has made us relational beings. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. And he created them male and female. God hardwired us to be relational beings. Everything, and let's just take time out for a second. Have you ever noticed how everything in Genesis 1 is under attack? You know, it starts out with the existence of God. Oh, there's no God. There can't be an eternal being. And then it goes into how he created the earth. And there's no way that he could have possibly created the earth like it says he created the earth. And then it goes, you know, into how, how long it took him to create the earth. And there's not, you know, everything in Genesis 1 is under attack. But if you notice, the most recent attack on Genesis 1 is right here in Genesis 1 verse 27. That he created the male and female. You know, gender identity is... It is, it is under attack. You know, when, when it comes to gender identity, the world has lost its mind. Did you know that almost 3% of teenagers right now that were surveyed in a poll that was done less than a month ago that just came out said that 3% of them do not know if they're boy or girl? Confusion has spiked in our world. But why do we have this confusion? This didn't exist when I was growing up. It wasn't 3%. It might have been one thousandth of a percent. Why does it exist? It exists because we have have spewed the confusion on our kids and, and the enemy wants to undermine the foundations of our faith. And so God's not real. He didn't make the world. And you're really not male and female. And if he can undermine those basic comments or concepts, then he can keep us from a relationship with the Creator. Listening to a news program the other day, it was by a gender neutrality champion. And I was listening to this lady, and she said, I have a real moral dilemma. She loves her family, her family doesn't understand her completely, which I understand. But her sister was having a gender reveal party. You know, know, in which I don't understand gender reveal parties exactly either. But if you have fun with those, fine. That's great. Her sister was having a gender reveal party. And she said, I have a moral dilemma. Should I go and abuse this child by forcing on them a nature that they might not choose? Our world has lost its mind. And and we are adding to this by not clearly stating that in the beginning God made them male and female. 
And we have unique roles and unique functions. But I want you to understand, as big as the distinction between male and female is, which caused us to be relational beings, the image of God is the same in all of us. We all are image bearers, and we all contain that special uniqueness that when people look at us, they can give glory to the Creator and say, that God who made you must be a unique God. And as this unique being, we have elevated responsibility. There's a scriptural principle that Jesus taught us, to whom much is given, much is required. And humanity has been given the privilege of bearing the image of God, and with that comes great responsibility. God blessed them, verse 28 says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first responsibility humanity has been given is to be fruitful and multiply. God desires this relational being to have children who will fill the earth. Now, I don't think this command is for all of us to become the Duggars. You know, I, we are commanded to have offspring who will know the Lord and give Him glory. Then He says, and we are not only to fill the earth, but we are to subdue the earth, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seeds. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth, everything that having the breath of life in it, I've given you every green plant for food. And it was so. I, I think that as we read this verses, we have to acknowledge that our responsibility is to have dominion over all the earth. There's two things at play here. And I, I really, I know some of the topics that I've hit on and will hit on in a second could be offensive to some. And I have no intention to be offensive. But we have the right to eat whatever we want to eat. I, that is a Genesis 1, God-given right. It is expressed throughout the Bible that we can eat what, whatever we want to eat. It's not a sin to eat meat. I, this billboard was brought to my attention this week. It's a, it's a, 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 is that a lobster or a crab? Crab, thank you. It's a crab, thank you. He says, I'm me, not meat. See the individual go vegan. If you want to be a vegan, go for it. More meat for me. But your rationale for that should not be that this crab is an individual. This crab is an animal that was given for our pleasure as we are on the earth. Genesis 1 makes no excuse for that. So neither will I. The second thing I would say is that we have the responsibility to steward the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All the inhabitants belong to the Lord, but He has given us the responsibility to rule well. This week we awoke on Monday morning to newspaper articles talking about how, how climate change is rapidly changing our earth. Now, please hear me before you go into your corner. 
I do think that climate change is more often than not used as a political football. Like the article on Monday that said by 2030, if we do not go back to pre-industrial levels by 2020, the earth will be beyond hope. Now, I just want you to think about what was said in that. Pre-industrial levels means pre-air conditioner, pre-refrigerator, pre-antibiotics, pre-cars, pre-planes. That's not happening. It's not happening in the United States. It's not happening anywhere else in the world. But that was what was said. If we don't go back there, we we will not be able to recover. I, I just want to tell you, whether man is the cause or not the cause, there is a sovereign God who is over all, who is the one who will pull the curtain down on this earth. We do not hold those keys. With that said, this verse that man should rule over the earth is used to justify we can treat and do whatever we want. I think we have the responsibilities to be good stewards. These two things shouldn't be at war because red and blue can't get along. We have responsibilities to be good caretakers of the garden. The earth is the Lord's. We shouldn't abuse it. So who are we? We are God's special creation that he loves uniquely. We possess the image of the divine. Now this is where we want the music to start playing and we ride off into the sunset and we live happily ever after. But there's another part of our makeup that we have to acknowledge and that is we are fallen people. As you continue to read Genesis, it's obvious this special creation has failed to live up to expectations. We read in Genesis 3 that sin entered into the world and every person has been infected. And because of sin and because of this infection, we live in a broken state and all of us live there. And if you think you don't live there, you haven't lived long enough. Because as you continue to live, your perpetual state of brokenness will make itself obvious. I hear people saying all the time, I love reading about the heroes of the Bible. And that's one of the most confusing things people tell me about the Bible. I'm like, who are they? I read the Bible about messed up, broken people. I mean, I I, I read about Moses, who was a reluctant prophet with anger issues. Or David, who was an adulterous king with a dysfunctional family. Or Abraham, who hardened uh, his heart when he went into Egypt and didn't trust God, and but rather he handed his wife over to another man to save his own neck. Or Elijah, who tucks tail and runs at the threats of a hateful woman. Or Jacob, who's a deceiver. Or Jonah, who was a preacher who got mad when people actually did what he asked him to do. Or Peter, who denied Jesus. Or Thomas, who lived in doubt. Or Paul, who was a murderer. That's the Bible I read. It's filled with messed up, broken people. But let me tell you, you don't need a Bible survey to figure out how messed up you are. You just need to wake up in the morning. Because experience tells us of our brokenness. We are to be moral beings. We are moral beings. And we know right from wrong. We know what is, is good, but all of us have failed to find the inner strength to do it. I won't get into your private life. But if you'll spend just a second there, you know that I'm right. 
You know what is right and wrong, and you know like a moth drawn to a flame, you continually go back to what you know is wrong and not good. We're relational beings, but yet we disappoint people, we lie to people, we have motives that are highly selfish. We're rational beings, and yet we do what hurts ourselves. We lack self-discipline, and we lie to ourselves and say that it's normal. We are broken people. All people are broken people. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But as sinners, the image of God within us is not gone. It's just marred. Man is still valuable after the fall. And page after page of the Bible shows God's pursuing people in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of our sin. This has been my story. there's ever been a person who didn't deserve to stand up here and talk to y'all it's me there's ever been a person who hasn't deserved the love of God it's me the greatest mystery to me as I contemplate scripture is not who made God it's why does the God who exists love me who am I who am I that you think of me God And yet he does. He says, I'm a person worthy to be redeemed. The whole Bible centers on the mess that we've made and God's plan to redeem us. And for so long, I mean, the entire Old Testament, it seems completely hopeless. God lifts them up out of the pit and they return to their mess. God delivers them from an oppressor and they turn their back on God. God forgives them of their sin, and they sin more. That's the story of the Old Testament. But yet, when we turn the page to the New Testament, and the Son of God was born, one who was without fault or blemish was born, and he lived a perfect life. And by living that perfect life, he was enabled to die that substitution death. And he died on the cross for us, so that we who are sinful and broken and deceived can now be restored and redeemed. And this wasn't simply a last-ditch effort to try to recover man. It was God's plan all along. I want to take you to one more passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you your takeaways. But don't miss these Scriptures. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. For God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and different, and instead of being broken, we would be blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted. Through through Jesus Christ from self, according to His favor and will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He favored us with in the Beloved, in Jesus. We have redemption in Him through His blood. The forgiveness of of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Who am I? I'm a fallen creation of God who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what can we take away from this message today? Who are you? You're someone who should be humble because you didn't start this universe and you will not determine when it's done. Be humble. Who are you? Uh, 
You, you need to understand who you are because if you don't, you will devalue human life and you will elevate things that are not worthy to be elevated above man. If you don't understand this, here's the real dilemma and here's where our world is finding itself. They live in broken mess, running from relationship to relationship or experience to experience or, or physical thing to physical thing, trying to fill the void in their life. And if you don't understand that you are marred and broken, you are destined to a life of constantly trying to fill a void that you cannot fill. Not understanding who you are will leave you satisfied with your fallen condition. You think this is the best I got, I better make the best of it. I'm going to give you one more if you're a note taker. It's not on your notes, but let me give you this. In spite of your brokenness, God has chosen to redeem you through Christ. In spite of your brokenness, God in His sovereign choice has chosen to redeem you in Christ. Give Him glory. That's why we'll take the Lord's Supper in just a minute. To give Him glory that it's by the blood of Jesus Christ that the image that has been marred is now recovered. Let's pray.